you want the bad news or the good news first? All right, let's go with the bad. <laughs> uh, I may have been getting a little bit ahead of the story yesterday and some of the things that I was saying. Uh, I got reflecting on the scriptures, and it was it was it was kind of nagging at my mind a little bit even yesterday that I was overlooking something, <clears throat> and I think that perhaps I was. Now this will turn out to be probably good news before I'm done. Uh, so the bad news is I may have jumped the gun a little on the story. The good news is it's better for us if what I have to say today happens first. Consider this, that <clears throat> Ezra only deals with the building of the temple. It doesn't have to do with the wall or Jerusalem. And the book of Nehemiah follows with a story about building of the wall of Jerusalem. So uh, there are two separate things we're dealing with here. And to interject the building of Jerusalem in the story of Ezra is, I think, premature. Uh, it would have been better to wait on Daniel 9 until we got on over to Nehemiah. And let me explain a little more. In the book of Haggai, it addresses Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people who are stirred to come and build the temple. And it talks only about the temple, right? There's no mention in there of the building of Jerusalem. Uh, then as you go down through Haggai, and I'll pick this up a little bit. Well, let's see, it's before Matthew. All right. <clears throat> He's talking about the temple of God, the Lord's house. Now, in history, they built the temple first and dealt with the wall in Jerusalem secondarily. In other words, in order of importance, the temple of God is more important than the city itself. Uh, the temple being the most important part of the city, if you will. And even in the heavenly Jerusalem which comes down, uh, the bride, the 144,000, uh, has the parameters, the boundaries of the cities based on those numbers of the bride. But the temple, the holiest part of the city, where the Father and the Son dwell, is the most important part of the New Jerusalem. They are the key figures. The bride is secondary, though she becomes the bride of and part of the family, and certainly very, very important, <clears throat> but never as important as the Father and the Son. I had a couple of thoughts during the sermonette there about uh, the bridle that you put on a horse, and it, it kind of ties in on a way here. Bridle, or that having to do with bride, and bridle on a horse are very similar. <laughs> they sound alike. Uh, they're spelled a little differently. But the point he was making is that the bride herself needs to bridle her tongue. So it's part of bridal preparation, if you will, pun intended. <clears throat> no one ever intends or unintends a pun. They say pun not intended. That's a lie. They wouldn't say it if they didn't intend it. That isn't spiritual. Forget it. Let's move on. But the thought came to my mind in Ezekiel there about the portable throne of Christ borne by 
the angels, cherubs, and how he didn't have to pull on a bridle or anything else. All he had to do was turn his head, and it would turn and go right where he wanted. So if we're the kind of bride that he is seeking, we will be very, very responsive to everything he wishes and wants done, and our mind will be of service and giving and loving and helping and sharing to accomplish the job he has, which is a pretty big job to rule the world and love, joy, happiness, and peace. And he needs a very responsive bride to do that. So if you're always sawing on the reins, uh, it makes it difficult to get the job done. I suppose we've all ridden different types of horses. I've ridden those where they fought the bit and jerked every way and wouldn't respond, and then I've had those that just don't, like he was saying, do what you want almost before you know you need to do it. If you're riding a quarter horse cutting cattle, you're the one that better be alert or you'll be dumped off when he turns to get the job done. And we don't want dumped off of Christ's bridle train. Anyway, enough of that. Now, in building the temple, he says there has to be a difference made between the clean and the unclean in Haggai 2, verses 12 through 14. But the part I want is right after that. And now, I pray you, or ask you, consider from this day and upward or forward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the eternal, since those days were, since before a stone was laid, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press bat to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you turned not to me, says the Eternal. And that is an indictment against the end-time church in which we were not responsive in the way that we should have been, and God did put spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease upon us, and that great growth that we received during Worldwide came to a screeching halt, and we entered a time of spiritual famine and lack of growth, and in fact, even going backward in the church of God, where many, many thousands of people were falling away, and a great falling away has been occurring. Many, many people, you know some, I know some, who aren't hanging somewhere in the church of God today, but have gone right back into the world and into Protestantism and so on and so forth. We all know those stories. So before the stone is laid in the temple, those are the conditions that we're in right now today. And we didn't turn to him the way he wants us to turn to him. Verse 18, consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, so this is an important date in the future. Even from the day that the foundation of the Eternal's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Has there been a harvest? Has there been much happen? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth. So he says, before stone is laid in the temple, there's not much production. There's no fruit being produced. It's a, it's a dead time. But from this day forward, from the time that a stone is laid from the foundation of the temple, I will bless you. 
So there is a specific pronouncement of blessing associated with laying the temple foundation. As we saw yesterday, there is a specific blessing uh, involved with laying uh, the foundation of Jerusalem or beginning to rebuild the city. So we're, doing, we're dealing here, I think, with two different levels of blessing. Let's go back for a moment in thought and consider this, that God says he is going to bring forward a small tithe or a little less than 10% remnant for himself in Isaiah 1.9. It's how the book opens. Then he goes on to describe uh, how bad things are in the church and in the nation in the second and third chapters and the totally deplorable condition at the end of chapter 3. Then in Isaiah 4, he talks about seven women taking hold of one man and saying, we have nothing. We need a name. We need uh, a good reputation, in other words. We've, we've fallen on hard times. We need a man to lead us. <clears throat> That's early in the book. And even yesterday, as we did a very quick thumbnail sketch of Isaiah 40 through 55. Uh, it's there in chapter 41, very quickly after it talks about crying out the message of God at the end, that he says, I will plant seven trees in the desert. That's in chapter 41, verse 19. So the planting of the trees, the building of the temple, seems to be coming ahead of that, even in that context of Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 51, uh, before it talks about the major blessings coming after 53, where it talks about Christ and his sacrifice, Isaiah 51, uh, I didn't read that yesterday. I meant to, my eye didn't fall on it. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the eternal, Isaiah 51.1. <clears throat> Look to the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. Look to Abraham, your father, Sarah that bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the eternal shall comfort, and comfort includes blessing, I would think. Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, Zion being the church, and Zion ultimately being the nation. And he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the eternal. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. And that's before the widening of your tents and so on in chapter 55, or, yeah, 54 and 55. So I would take it that the pattern is here uh, in the temple in Jerusalem story at the end time, that it will follow the pattern of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the historical record of how God did it in the past. That he will, first of all, address the temple, because that's what he addresses in Haggai and Zechariah with the two witnesses and the remnant of the people that are stirred to come from afar to build it. That is the first order of business. And then secondly, address the city. That would fit that ancient historical pattern. Followed, of course, Ezra following, or Nehemiah following Ezra. You might note, too, in this uh, sequence, that in the book of Revelation, he addresses the seven churches early in the book. 
He addresses Christ first in chapter 1, and then his relationship with the churches follows that immediately. So it may be, and, and the temple uh, is the church, basically, even though Hebrews 12 includes Zion and Jerusalem as part of the church. It's all one and the same, and yet it seems that there are two phases here, just as there were originally. <clears throat> so in going to Daniel 9, I, I think I did jump ahead of the story a little bit. However, if the towns without walls, with a covert from the heat and God's protection of a wall of fire around them, are to occur before the laying of the foundation of Jerusalem and the temple is to be laid at that time, that simply means that a level of blessing from God is going to come even before what I was alluding to yesterday. But there would be a level of blessing come with laying the foundation of the temple and another level uh, with Daniel 9 in the building of Jerusalem. You might notice in reading that in Haggai 2 that it said, from this day and forward, I will bless you. But it did not specify the level of blessing, did it? In other words, <clears throat> blessing will have to return in order for God to have what God has to do and what he has to do with the temple. However, let's go back to Daniel and see that the level of blessing here is even higher. Understand that I do not feel that I have all the answers, certainly not yet. I think the answers are coming, and the more we study and think and pray, and as this thing progresses forward, we'll understand it clearer. I understand Daniel 9, I think, today better than the last time we went through this in uh, 2003 at the feast. As we progress, God adds a little bit to the picture and the details fill in. <coughs> he doesn't open my head at night and just pour all this stuff in and all of it be right immediately and correct. And I do not for a moment claim to have that kind of relationship with God. Uh, he gives us what we need when we need it. And sometimes we have to say, wait a minute, am I putting something ahead or behind and go back and look at it again and sort it out better than sort it out before. So, infallible, I'm not. But notice here, verse 24 of Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to restrain sin, to make, or let's see, to finish the transgression, to restrain sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophet and to anoint the holy ones or to anoint is where it stops in the Hebrew. Now, notice that this prophecy ends 70 weeks later with the setting of the abomination of desolation. And that is three and a half years, 1260 days before Christ returns. People have tried to stretch this thing out over 490 years and then truncate it for a while, and then it picks up again, uh, and that it's talking about Christ himself. And yet this prophecy ends three and a half years before Christ ever sets foot or comes down in the clouds where we rise to meet him. So it can't be referring 
specifically to his ministry or things that he does. It is people that he is leading and guiding to do a job, and certainly he's involved, but it doesn't have to do with his ministry. What's wrong with us just accepting this at face value and that it is literally 70 weeks? You know, we do that with the prophecy back in chapter 8. Now, it talks about the daily sacrifice and the abomination of desolation as well, and it's the 2300-day prophecy or the 1150 mornings and evenings, as we've come to realize may be the case, 1150 days. But we don't try to stretch that into years, do we? Never have. The commentators don't necessarily try to do this. Well, what about Daniel 12 and the 1335, 1290, and 1260 days right at the end of the chapter? We've never said that stretches into years or a day for a year and applying that prophecy, have we? No, we've always said 1260 days or three and a half years or 42 months, which is the way the book of Revelation puts it. God makes it very clear in the book of Revelation that that period of time there is all three of those, 42 months, three and a half years, and 1260 days, so there can be no confusion in the book of Revelation. So this uh, prophecy at the end of Daniel is certainly a major prophecy, but we recognize that it is in days, not days as a year. So then why do the commentators, and why have we in the past, dictated that another major prophecy in Daniel has to be stretched out into 490 years. There's nothing here that requires that. And we already know and have seen in Isaiah 44 and 45 that the temple and the foundation, I mean the, uh, the Jerusalem and the foundation of the temple have to be laid in the end time by one Cyrus, or he directs it and makes it possible. So, I want to take this, for the time being at least, unless I can see something entirely different at some point, as literally 70 weeks. And even though we may be a little ahead of the story, we're, we're already into it, so I'd like to go ahead and, and go on through it uh, at this point, and then maybe when we get through Ezra and start dealing with Jerusalem itself in particular, we could kind of plug it back in, but, it, but I hate to just go off right in the middle of it. Uh, then you do have it cut off in the midst of the prophecy. That's a joke. All right, but notice the level of blessing here. And what I'm thinking is this, then, that a certain level of blessing comes when we begin to build the temple in the ninth month, 24th day. That year, uh, this year, that's about... I think around the 10th of January, I don't remember the exact date, whether it has any application this year or not remains to be seen. I've been watching the ninth month, 24th day since about 1996 uh, to see which year it would apply. So I'm not making any predictions for this year either. Uh, in fact, it appears to me that Joshua Zerubbabel and the gathering of the people is already beginning or in place before that one will apply, and certainly that is not yet the case, uh, because it comes late in Haggai and says that the blessing comes from the day that you actually begin building the temple. Haggai starts out by saying, 
why are you neglecting my temple? It needs to be built. And everybody says it's not time to do it. So he says he will bless us from the time we start. Now, that isn't the po- that's the point I was making yesterday even about Daniel 9. That the blessing begins from the time we actually start building Jerusalem. So even though these may be two different uh, commissions, each has a reward for actually starting the work. God is consistent in that. But this one in Daniel 9 ends with what? Fleeing to a place of safety, of the abomination being set. And the level of blessing here described seems to be perhaps higher than that in Haggai. From this day will I bless you, and then coming to the level of blessing indicated here may be two different matters. Because this indicates people who by that point uh, have their salvation secure. I don't think once we reach the level of verse 24 that anybody is going to turn back. Okay? And it doesn't come from just the very first day. He says 70 weeks are determined in order to accomplish these blessings. So it's not just the first day. Now, they may start then, but it takes all 70 weeks to complete the cycle of what he's talking about here, okay? All right. When do we have the final cut, if you will? Matthew 24 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation set up, you are to flee immediately and to pray that you be accounted worthy to escape. Now, in determining who will be accepted there, we may have the final cut. In other words, we can come maybe to those towns without walls. We can be there. It does talk about the rebellious men of Anatoth back in Jeremiah. So I'm sure that all those who come will not all have the correct attitude Some may repent and change their attitude. Others may remain negative and belittling and unbelieving and not overcoming up until the time the abomination is actually set. And then God says we must be accounted worthy. So he will make the final cut at the time of going to the place of safety. So it takes 70 weeks to come to that point from the time that the temple or the order to uh, rebuild Jerusalem is given. And by the end of that 70 weeks, God will know who is going to get left behind and who is going to go forward. And once you go to a place of safety, I suspect that if you make that cut, there will be no turning back. I don't think there's anyone who goes there that will have a rebellious, negative Uh, backward attitude and have to be kicked out the gate into the world. God will see to it that only those who have the right attitude and the right approach go there. Otherwise, they'll fall and break a leg or they'll go back in the house after something or for whatever reason, God will make sure that they do not arrive. And that would include our children. If they are accounted worthy to escape with their parents, They would not necessarily have the kingdom of God made, if you will, but at that point, I think they would be designated as living on over into the millennium, not being killed in the tribulation. 
because they will be protected in that three and a half years in the place of safety. So if we are obedient and our children are taught and are obedient and make it through that final cut, then our salvation, I think, is pretty much uh, assured and the protection of our children on over into the millennium is also pretty much assured. Maybe there could be an exception to that, but I, I doubt it. I don't think God will let us go to the place of safety unless we have reached that point that Paul reached. You know, he had his concerns about himself. He says, man, I have to be careful lest after I've preached to others I myself become a castaway. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. So he was still having a struggle with his human nature, even as an apostle taught three and a half years directly by Christ. He was still a human being, and he still had his battle. But he finally did reach the point, just before he died, where he said, I have finished the course, I have fought a good fight, and he knew at that point that he would be in the kingdom of God. He never had the once saved, always saved approach. In fact, he had the, I better be careful or I won't be saved approach. But he did finally come to the end where he realized, you know, I have obeyed and I have fought and I know that God's mercy is going to cover me and I will be in the kingdom of God. And I hope that apart from self-righteousness and vanity and ego, we can all come finally to that humble assessment that yes, I have fought a good fight. I doubt if any of us are to that point yet. I know I still have to fight every day to walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh. And sometimes it's a pretty hard struggle. The body, the flesh, cries to be taken care of, doesn't it? If nothing other than just spiritual laziness can come over us. You know, you might not be attempted to lie, steal, cheat, and some of those things much anymore. But just not to pray and study and be spiritually lazy is a temptation in itself. That's an easy one. And boy, do you have to fight that one. We can get so busy with this life and making a living and tending house and the kids and the horses and, you know, whatever, the car, that God can be put on the back burner. And that is a Laodicean, lukewarm attitude toward God. He should be first and foremost in our thoughts. We should be sure that we take care of our spiritual life ahead of the physical. But boy, the physical weighs us down, and there's so many things, you know. I've always got a notebook page full on my to-do list. It seems like I start working at it and scratching things off a bit, and I get it down to where, man, there's more scratched off than there is to do, and it's time to make a new list. And it'll be just as long as the first one was. It never ends. It just never ends. So we have to put first things first. And that is not easy to do. And maybe this is a good way to explain to us, I mean, you come at it from different angles, but to explain to us how we are Laodicean or lukewarm. You know, when people are first dating or thinking about getting married, they are so very, very attentive to one another. They can hardly stay off the phone or got to see each other, got to talk regularly, got to see each other every day, got to be so attentive. 
Every little grimace, every little lack of a smile, oh, what did I do? What did I do? I want, to, I want you to be happy with me. We're so attentive. And then it doesn't take too long until, <clears throat> ho-hum, take them for granted. The first love with God is very exciting. with new truth and new understanding. We dig and dig and dig. And then it isn't too long until ho-hum. And that's what Laodiceanism really is all about. Maybe it doesn't have to do with adultery and fornication, lying, cheating, and stealing, and breaking the commandments in that way. But a ho-hum approach, or a lukewarm approach, is what God was so concerned about. See, you're assuming something. You're arrogant. If you take a ho-hum approach, that means you must think, either consciously or subconsciously, that after all, I'm okay. I don't really need to work at this. And none of us have reached that point. But I think that with the events that are ahead and what must be done and the job God has before us, that we will either heat up to an excitement and a fervor and a desire to do what he wants done here at the end, or we're going to sort of ho-hum it and be negative all the way through and never jump on the bandwagon and never really do anything. So it's really up to us, isn't it? And then God has to make the final cut. But I think that once that decision of whether we are worthy to escape or not is made, we will have finally reached that point where there's no turning back, and we will, God will have pondered our heart enough to know that if he includes us in that, we're going to go all the way with this thing. We won't be backing off. We'll see that a little more clearly, I think, here when we get to that, to chapter 11. So let's pick it up again here uh, with these blessings that will come and that in 70 weeks these conditions will have been accomplished. Uh, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, not the temple here, but Jerusalem, unto the anointed shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So there's a division here. There's a seven-week period and then a 62-week period for a total there of 69. It does not specify what would happen at the end of seven weeks. But the very fact that he makes a division there indicates that there must be some important event. Otherwise, why didn't he just say 69 and save space? No, there's something that happens at the end of seven. And then it goes on for 62, uh, seven weeks, three score, and two weeks, colon, the street shall be built again, and the wall, or the moat, or ditch, even in troublous times. So the streets of Jerusalem have to be built, a moat, or a fence, or a basis, or a base for, or a foundation for a wall, whatever that means, uh, has to also be built. And it will be in very troublous times. It does not say that about the villages without walls, even though God does at some point have to be a defense around it, otherwise it would be destroyed. And after three score and two weeks shall the anointed be cut off, but not for himself. And various translations indicate, including my uh, 
margin here, uh, Messiah shall be cut off, or the anointed be cut off, and shall have nothing. Well, if this is talking about Zerubbabel, or the anointed, the two witnesses, they will have the temple of God, which will have been built. During this period of time, they will have rebuilt uh, the moat and the streets of Jerusalem. So they will have something. The temple treasures, everything that goes with the blessings of God at the end, by the end of 69 weeks, they will have. But then that will be cut off and they will have nothing. Now the next significant event, right after this verse we're just reading, is fleeing to a place of safety when the abomination of desolation is set up. Well, what is going to happen? How much do we flee with? Do we pack the temple treasures on our back? Do we pack the streets of Jerusalem on our back? Do we pack the temple on our back? I think not. It says, wherever you are, just go. Don't go and pick up anything. So, when the beast comes to, or the little horn, whoever he turns out to be, of Daniel 8, comes against Jerusalem and the temple, the church, to destroy it, we leave with nothing. Everything that we've built in the short space of a few years, we walk off from. So we'll be cut off with nothing. Cut off from the city, cut off from the temple, cut off from all those physical blessings that God had given. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the city and the temple. I just said that, but he specifies it here. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. Keep your finger there. Go back to Revelation 12. Here it talks in this chapter about the, the woman, the church, and Satan, the great serpent, the dragon, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth in verse 9, and his angels were cast out with him, never again to go to the throne of God. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. He will be allowed to accuse us before the throne of God until the abomination of desolation and we go to a place of safety. After that, he will never, I think, be allowed to go back there again. He will be cast down to the earth. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Some will be killed, and we'll see that in, in the Daniel 11 here in a few minutes. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come to you, down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. He only has three and a half years left at that point to run his world government. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, the church, which brought forth the man-child, Christ. We're to, have, we're to be bringing him forth in our character. We don't give birth to Christ in that sense. I mean, he's already there, and he's already qualified. He's not going to become a child again. 
but we have to produce him in our lives and in our character. So we bring him forth in that sense so that he can see us or see us in himself. And to the woman were given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, for she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the servant. Serpent. So three and a half years, the church is protected. Wings of the great eagle does not necessarily mean 747s as we surmised. <clears throat> they walked when they flew on the wings of the great eagle out of Egypt. The great eagle just represents Christ and God's protection. He is the great eagle who can oversee, protect, and take care of us, but it doesn't necessarily mean airplanes. And in fact, if those towns without walls are near the place of safety, uh, there are no landing strips at each one to get you there. I think it will be walking. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood, or as an army in biblical symbolism, after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of that flood of people. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. I think that truly is talking of an earthquake that swallows up the army, just as the waves of the Red Sea swallowed up uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there are going to be those accounted worthy to escape, there will be some left behind, and then there will be the 90% that never responded in the first place. And they go into the tribulation, and there they are tried for three and a half years, and most will die there. We'll see that reiterated again in uh, Daniel 11. So he uses the same word here, a flood, in Revelation 12, speaking of the same period of time. The end thereof shall be with a flood, and to the end of the war, desolations are determined. So, the, the abomination of desolation will be set, the faithful will flee, and there will be war until the end, until Christ returns. And he shall confirm the covenant with, with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now, he's saying in a different way what's to happen during that last week. You have it 69 weeks, 7 plus 62 to be building. And then at the beginning of the 70th week, there's going to be a confirmation of, an, of a covenant or an agreement. Maybe this agreement will be what? Now, remember, we're looking here and analyzing this today as 70 literal weeks not years. If you want to talk about this being this last week being seven years, uh, there isn't room because uh, there's not 490 years for the whole prophecy. You can't go through the prophecy as literal days until the last week and then say, well, let's just switch to years. How can you do that? I don't think we have anywhere near 490 years left, do you? Not if we're going to have old men who could see the former temple under Herbert Armstrong and the latter temple under the two witnesses. That would be some really, really old folk. So I don't think that fits at all. 
So this has to be, if the first 69 weeks are literal, and it appears that they are, that the last week is also literal. Well then, what is the explanation of this? Let me give you some thoughts. I don't know that I have it all nailed down, but it may appear to be this way. Let's, let's have it firmly in mind. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. So this is the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet and quoted by Matthew in Matthew 24. And it is the signal to flee. And it comes in the midst of the week. If you figure the week starting on Sunday, that would be on Wednesday. Remember, we're to pray that it not come on the Sabbath or in inclement weather. That's an interesting thought that we were discussing some here recently, I think maybe even yesterday again, that uh, if this were all set in the Middle East, as we have always assumed, I would rather flee in the winter than in the summer. It can be 115, 20 degrees in that desert in the summer. That's no time to be fleeing for your life. It would be more like 60, 70 degrees. Well, let's go with 40 or 50 degrees even. I'd rather flee by far with it 40 and 50 degrees because if you're in a hurry to leave at 40 and 50 degrees, you'll still sweat. And if you've got an army or a flood of men on your tails with guns, you'll sweat it even more. Now, if it's referring to over here, I think I'd rather flee in the summer than the winter. Zero or 10 or 20 below is a lot different. And I'd rather flee with it being 85 or 90 or even 95 perhaps than I had at 10 or 20 below zero. So just a little thought thrown in there about the Middle East or here. There, there are a lot of things that perhaps begin to add up. So, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even till the consummation, the consummation, the climax, the end. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolator. So, he pours his wrath, and the church has to flee because he destroys the temple and Jerusalem. And then three and a half years later, at the consummation of all these things, that destruction comes down on the desolator. It says desolate in the King James margin says the desolator. So he gets his after trying to give us ours. But let's go over to Daniel 11 for a moment and consider some things here because it's talking about the very same event, the abomination of desolation. It's mentioned in chapter 8, uh, again in chapter 9, and here again in 11. One, the 1150-day pro uh, prophecy, one, the 70-week prophecy, and one here... Uh, about conditions around the abomination of desolation. So the abomination of desolation and the flight of the church are very, very key issues and they're at the heart and the center of all these major prophecies in Daniel. Now, Daniel 11 is about the going back and forth and the wars and the conferences and so on of the king of the north and the king of the south. And some of that may already be going on. We'd have to carefully identify events since 91, maybe, and Desert Storm to see if that may already be in part transpiring. Uh, 
or whether it still is yet to come, compacted very quickly in a few years. But already we have the king of the north, Babylon, the United States, going back and forth to Iraq, and now maybe into Iran. So maybe some of these events are already occurring before our very eyes. Uh, that perhaps remains to be seen, and I don't want to go there today. But it talks about the king, of, and I think there may be two kings of the north. We are the powerful king at the moment, George Bush of Iraq, king of Iraq. Uh, but we will fall. Remember, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, Revelation 18.4. So it may be that we are the leaders of Babylon today, but we fall because the beast and the false prophet eat the woman. They hate her, uh, that great whore Babylon. So they destroy her. Then you have a new king of the north, perhaps in Europe. And maybe then he goes back and forth with the king of the south for a while. So I think there may be a, a shift of power there when the United States goes down. Well, obviously there will have to be. So we may be in the first part of this typified as the king of the north, and that may change to Europe then shortly in the future. But the king of the north and the king of the south, at any rate in verse 27, sit down and tell lies at one table. So they're, they're going to confer, but they're going to lie to each other. They're not going to keep their promises. Uh, then shall he return, verse 28, to his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. So this, we already have identified who will come against the church. That's back in Daniel 8. Let me review that very quickly here, because this is a story of the, uh, the ram and the goat, and how the goat with one horn pushes at the ram, breaks off the first horn, then goes back and breaks off the second horn, of the ram, and it goes down to identify that as Persia. The little horn, the goat, is referred as the kingdom of Grecia, uh, verse 21, when it begins to explain this. But I think that that can be referring to the United States of America, because at the time that this was written, or from that perspective, the kingdom of the West, or the furthest kingdom of the West, was Grecia. And then that changed. The furthest kingdom of the West is no longer Greece, but North America and the United States in particular. So it may be the identity has changed, but it's still referring to the king of the West. It says he goes without touching the ground. Uh, where is that in verse, uh, verse 5? And touch not the ground. Perhaps that's air warfare without even having to get on the ground. I don't know. But anyway, it says that the horn of the he-goat, after he breaks the second horn to Persia or the king of the south, will have his horn broken. And I think it's talking about us. We'll go into Iran. We will break their horn. And then we're going to have a coalition of America which will come and break our horn. And... Let's go then to verse 21 to explain this. Uh, the rough goat is the king of Grecia, perhaps the western kingdom, now referring to the United States. Uh, what is Greece today? Uh, there's no significance there that you can place on Greece whatsoever. Uh, they're just a third-rate nation. Uh, they, they don't seem to have any place in prophecy. 
but America certainly has a very high place in prophecy in what is about to happen and is happening. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. It appears that if this is talking about us, our land is divided into four pieces, and it will not have the power that it did have. Uh, and in the latter time of their kingdom, so they're going to rule for a while in this nation, I think, with it divided, when the transgressors are come to the full, the beast power will reach its zenith of strength and power, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences or sinister schemes or the occult, demonism, shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. In other words, he's going to have power added. Satan the devil can add a great deal of power to a false king. And he shall destroy wonderfully, or hugely, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He's going to come against the people of God. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, or the occult. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace or offerings of peace, or through peaceful means and promises, shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, that would be Christ, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, it will be for many days. Daniel was upset about it. But this little horn, or this one who rules over one of the four quadrants of what was America, then will come against the holy people. So that must be whom he is referring to here in Daniel 11. So let's go back there. At the time appointed, verse 29, he shall return and come toward the... Uh, let's see. 28 is where I left it off and where I wanted to expound. Then shall he return to his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do his exploits and return to his own land. So someone is coming against the church of God. At uh, the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former as the latter. And I don't know that I understand all of this sequence, and I'm not going to try to. I want to get to a certain point down here. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return. And here's where we want to pick it up. And have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Now remember in Daniel 9, it said that he shall, verse 27, he shall confirm a covenant or an agreement with many for one week. Apparently some kind of deal is going to be made. Now remember this whole sequence, this whole prophecy is about the church of God and what it will take to usher in righteousness and forgiveness of sin and put an end to sin and that type of thing. But he spreads the abomination in the middle of that 70th week. He'll confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and the abomination to occur. So 69 and a half weeks after the order is given to rebuild Jerusalem, he will have made a covenant or an agreement at the beginning of the 70th week, and in the middle of that week it appears that he betrays it, uh, breaks it, and comes against God's people. 
Alright? What does it say over here? Who is this individual going to have intelligence with when he comes back? With those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Remember Matthew 24? What does it say will happen just before time to go to a place of safety? Matthew 24, verse 11, Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Oh, I, I wanted to pick it up one verse before that, I guess. Verse 10, Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. They'll betray one another to the death. This is the same context back in uh, Daniel 11. <coughs> <coughs> he will have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So these are church people who are forsaking the Holy Covenant, who hate one another and betray one another, are willing to trade what they think is physical life for the names, perhaps, addresses, or whatever, or who are all of God's people, and they'll turn one another in to try to save their own height. They'll make an agreement, a covenant, a deal with he who is about to destroy, it appears to me, from this. Put Matthew 24, verse 10 together with this, and that seems to be a fairly clear picture. They'll forsake the holy covenant, and arms or the military shall stand on his part. So here it tells you that it's not just a flood of water but an army that stands on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. In other words, he's going to come with flatteries and make a deal with them to turn in other church members. I think that is the covenant or the deal that is made at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel 9. He comes back because this is a deal-making process we're reading about here in chapter 11. And some he will corrupt by flatteries. He'll tell them, oh, I'm going to take care of you. You're wonderful, and if you turn in these people, everything will go well with you, and we'll give you up to half the kingdom, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I doubt he used that one, but, you know, that's the way kings used to do it. In other words, everything will go your way if you will just help us get rid of these evil, nasty, rotten people who keep the commandments of God. That's the deal that will be made. He'll corrupt some by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall. Why? To try them, to purge, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. In other words, when the abomination of desolation is set, or happens, or hopefully just before, those who are accounted worthy to escape do. 
and those who are not are left behind to be tried and tested in the fire to prepare them. Now, Zechariah, toward the end there, chapter, what is it, 12, somewhere right in there, talks about how around 30% will repent in the tribulation. So only a 10% remnant is going to respond initially to God. Then there will be a final cut when the abomination is about to be set up. And those who make a deal with the beast are going to go right on into the tribulation. He will not keep his covenant. He will break it and kill them, if at all possible. And then, remember what Revelation 12 said, that Satan, if he, he will chase those who are counted worthy, his army will be swallowed up in a flood, and then he'll turn and go after the remnant of her seed, everyone who is left behind. So those 90% who will not respond to God are going to go into tribulation, and Satan is going to be on their tail trying to kill every last one of them. But you know, if you have God's Spirit at all, there is a light which human beings cannot see, but spirit beings can. And Satan would have no trouble identifying God's true people and seeking the beast and false prophet on them. But he will want to know who every one of them is. And those who make a deal with the beast will probably turn in the names of all they know who are left behind because of a promise of protection. And then the beast will send his people to try to get them all. And indeed, he may. It may be that any left behind will have to grow, will have to be overcome and be tried and made white, and may even have to physically die. Those who seek to save their life, remember, will lose it, and those who seek to lose it will save it. So if we try to save our physical grubby hide by making some deal with somebody and giving in to their flatteries, if we're left behind, then we're sealing our doom. And we are causing others to die. Verse 36, the king shall do according to his will and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. When the temple vessels are discovered, and the temple of God is built, and the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt according to these prophecies, the beast, the false prophet, the whole world will hate it with an absolute passion. They will have God's protection up until it's time for Satan to be cast down and to come after it. That wall of protection will be there up until that point. Then it will be removed. And we'll see the armies coming, and it's time to flee. I think we'll know ahead of time pretty much when it is. Because this is a timed prophecy in Daniel 9. It says that the order to build Jerusalem, the streets, the moat, whatever, will be given. And then there's 70 weeks until the conclusion of the whole matter. Now notice also here that it says in the midst of the week, verse 27, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and cause the abomination to overspread Jerusalem and the temple. So if that were in the middle of the week, for this prophecy to be ended, you have to come to the end of the week. 
the full 70 weeks. At 69 and a half weeks, the abomination will be set up. Middle of the week, middle of the last week. So that leaves three and a half days in the prophecy, doesn't it? Suppose, then, that when that abomination comes and is about to overspread Jerusalem and the temple, that those who are counted worthy flee, how long will they have to reach a place of safety? Probably three and a half days. Three and a half days. Because at the conclusion of this, and I think I made a bit of a misstatement yesterday, it isn't that the, all these things in verse 24 happen on the day that the order is given. Perhaps blessing returns in a way, and God blesses the work that uh, is almost unbelievable. But the finishing transgression, making an end of sin and reconciliation for iniquity and bringing in everlasting righteousness may take the whole 70 weeks to accomplish. So that God makes that final cut when the abomination is about to be set and we run for our lives, and those who make it to the place of safety then will fulfill, finish fulfilling this prophecy, which is 70 weeks total in duration. And once they're there, God will know, and they will know, as Paul did, I finished the fight, I know I'll be in the kingdom of God. There's no way, after everything we've been through at that point, if we're counted worthy to escape, that we're ever going to go back on it. And that three and a half years in a place of safety will be properly utilized <coughs> for training and preparation to be a part of the kingdom of God. So it does appear but this is indeed truly a 70-week thing and that a deal will be made <coughs> with the beast by some at the beginning of the 70th week. And he'll betray that trust three and a half days later and they'll be destroyed. And those who escape will have three and a half days to get there. Now, if we are correct in believing that this area of Zion in the southwest is indeed the final place of safety. Uh, and the villages without walls are built, seven of them, I think, at this point, in a diameter around it. The area that I see is possibly encompassing that is all within a three-and-a-half-day walk of Zion. No, nothing more than 40, 50, 60 miles away. And that can be covered in three-and-a-half days. So it all seems to sort of fit together there. Now, I may be wrong about all of this. I may be way out in left field and don't understand anything. But I don't think so. In Micah 5, he tells us to come out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. What does our land mean? Where is the church? Most of it is here. Who is scheduled to come against Israel at the end? The Assyrian. Where is Israel? The leader of it, and the biggest part of it, is right here in the United States of America and Canada. It's a much, much smaller population in Europe and England and South America, and, uh, I mean uh, South Africa and Australia. 
And we've always known, haven't we, that the Assyrian was going to come in and destroy America, a coalition of people probably led by the Assyrian, including the king of the south, the Muslims, and the whole world. A big confederacy that Psalm 89 talks about. And Isaiah 33, I think, identifies the land of promise as a land of far distances, something big, not something small. This, to me, is the promised land God gave to Israel. The most blessed, the most verdant country on the face of the earth. And it's where the bulk of Israel and the most important part of Israel is centered. And certainly Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh will take the brunt of the end-time captivity. So it says, go meet the Assyrian when he comes into our land. Remember seven uh, leaders, even eight, will go out against the Assyrian, not just the two witnesses. There will be others who will have strength, power given from God. There are many, many other things that indicate that the center of what God is doing is not the Middle East, but here. So it would not surprise me if we found out that God began things here and will finish them here. I think it's easy, fairly easy, to prove that he will finish them here. It may be a little harder to prove that they began here. But if that is indeed the case, I think we're very close to being able to prove that, probably within a matter of months or a year or whatever it takes, to prove one way or another whether what has been offered to us and presented to us is true or untrue. So I'm not going to say for sure until I see absolute proof. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue checking things out and moving forward in faith. Abraham walked not knowing where he was going. We cannot be given every answer ahead of time. God simply doesn't work that way. He always caused his people to have to walk by faith, didn't he? He never gave them all the answers ahead. Now, he does say that he won't do anything except he tells us by his servants, the prophets. So everything basically he's going to do is listed in here in the prophets, except maybe a few new things he hasn't told us about, he says in Isaiah. But essentially it's all in here. It's a matter of correctly understanding the Scripture. But if there's any lesson in the Bible, it is this, that God's people have to move forward not knowing the answers. Gideon, David, Abraham, start naming them off. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel didn't know the answer when they grabbed him by the collar and headed him toward the lion's den. Neither did those three who got thrown in the furnace. They didn't know the answer ahead of time. God didn't send an angel and say, look, boys, they're going to build this big fire, and they're going to throw you in it, and the guys that throw you in are going to die, it's so hot, but you're going to walk around, and I'll be there, and I'll walk with you. He didn't tell them that. They had to make a stand, and they had to walk forward, knowing that they would obey God rather than man, that they would put God ahead of Nebuchadnezzar or any other man and move forward. But I think Abraham is one of the best examples to use right here because it wasn't a matter just of his life at the moment. It was a matter of God told him, there are promises, you must go 
And I'm not telling you where you're going. You just start marching, boy. And somewhere along the line, you'll find out where you're going. Now, God tells us, I think, to do the same thing. He tells us, leave the cities, go dwell in the field. Go out in the wilderness, and I'll deliver you there. He doesn't say exactly where to go. I think he's given us clues, and we wound up in the right place. But at the same time, he didn't provide all the answers ahead of time. Do, you, do any of you remember an angel coming and saying, well, maybe you ought to go to Canab first, and then you're going to run around all over the countryside looking for a piece of land you can't afford, and then I'm going to give you one out among the patriots and expatriates and confederates and rabble and rebels and of all kinds, and that you can afford, and you can move there and tell us everything that was going to happen? Didn't tell me that. I don't think he told you that either. But I think he gave us clues as to what to do, and we had to go not knowing for sure where we were going. And now we've been given more information. And I, for one, do not feel that I can just ignore it. It's too compelling. I think I have to check it out. I have to find out what is the bottom line answer. I do know Osiris has to appear and he has to help the church. I do know the temple has to be built. I do know Jerusalem has to be built. Those are very, very plain scriptures. Exactly who, exactly where, and exactly when we have to move forward and find out. So if something comes along that looks like it might be that, I'm not going to sit back and say, oh, well, that can't be, or that doesn't make sense, or that would turn the world upside down. Oops. Doesn't God say it will turn the world upside down? Doesn't God say the world will hate it? And doesn't he tell us that he'll protect us if we do his will? And he will bless us beginning when we lay the foundation of the temple, and he will bless us again from the time that we begin rebuilding Jerusalem for 70 weeks until we have to flee for a place of safety and leave it all behind. Yes, he does. So I'm going to explore every avenue that comes up until I find the right street. Maybe God has led us to the right street. Has he, brethren, led us astray prior to this? No, I think he led us to the right place. He had us do the right things. He has us growing. He has us overcoming. He has us looking at ourselves and overcoming. And that's the key to spiritual salvation. So if we're headed in the right direction, doing what God would have us do, he won't throw us any curves. He won't give us all the answers ahead. He'll make us walk by faith because we can't please him without it. With it, we can. So don't be too alarmed if there are delays, there are setbacks, maybe even a wrong path or two taken and have to be retracted and moved on. Even as today, I said, remember, I have bad news and I have good news. I think I got a little ahead of the story. Let's, let's save that one until we get to Nehemiah because... The temple is what dealing, we're dealing with with Ezra. And Jerusalem comes afterward. So I had to kind of back up a little bit, reassess the scriptures, and realize I might have been getting a little ahead of the story. That's okay. We have to keep studying. We have to keep looking. We have to keep searching. 
or to find the truth as one searches for gold. Remember, Christ said. So it doesn't all come at once. And we should not be discouraged if even the preacher says, oh, wait a minute, better back up and start over here and come at this a little bit differently. Because I will do that the same as you will do that. But that doesn't mean we're not God's people. It means that we have to continue to grow, to understand. And when we don't fully understand, study it again, study it again. Keep studying it till we get it right. And I'll tell you what, the last 12 years, almost now, have been that process. Something would open up, and then you go to all the scriptures and search it out, and you think, well, that could be this, and then you come back later and say, no, that fits better here. And then as you keep going, the picture becomes clearer and clearer as the details are filled in. But you didn't understand it all at first. It takes time and moving forward. And obeying what you do know is clear, and then seeing what else comes clear and obeying that, and keep moving forward as Abraham did, and eventually you'll reach the promised land. That's what God would have us do. So I think we should be encouraged that we are seeing things more clearly and not discouraged that we don't see everything totally clearly yet. You know, let's be balanced and understanding mature about that, that it all takes time. So I'm getting close to the end of this, and this is a good place to stop. So let's kind of file away Daniel 9 uh, in our mind and maybe perhaps readdress it again a little bit when we start talking about building Jerusalem. But right now we're talking about the temple in the book of Ezra.